The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin... He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Glorious. Hello again, Acts. Say a quick prayer, and then we're going to jump into the message. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you speak. We pray that we draw closer to you. We pray that we understand your story a little bit better today. We say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. So we're in a series called How to Read Your Bible, and really diving deep into if God is true to his word, if the Bible really is the breath of God, as it says in Second Timothy, if it's built to equip us to do good, to understand who God is, to have sound doctrine, then we should probably understand how to read it. Because it was written between 4,000 and 2,000 years ago, right? This is a long time in the making, Scripture. And there's different types of genres. We don't write like the Bible is written anymore. And so we're spending seven weeks going through the major genres of Scripture, We're in our second week. Last week, we looked at Old Testament narrative, and this week, we're diving into Old Testament prophets. And what we've been doing is we've been saying that there are some questions that we can use to read the Bible that will help frame the narrative for us, right? So question number one, how does God protect and provide for his people in this section of Scripture? Two, what are the consequences of rebelling against God's plan? And then finally, what is God asking of his people, and what is God asking of me? And the reason why we have this in this order is because oftentimes when we read Scripture, we want to put ourselves at the center of God's story. We want to make it all about us. 
And what we find in Scripture really quickly is that when we make the story all about us, that's what sin is. That's what sin does. It turns the story back in on itself. And so when we say, no, we want to use Scripture to focus on who God is, what God is doing, the story of our rebellion against God, and then finally, what was God telling these people 2,000 years ago? So what is God telling me today? And we've been using that to kind of frame our understanding of each of these different genres. And so what we're going to do today is what we did last week, where we're going to explain a little bit of what the genre of prophecy is. And then we're going to dive into a chapter, Isaiah 53, what our reading was, and kind of look at, okay, how does that frame, how do these questions frame how we read this genre, kind of in action, what does this look like? So historical background of the prophets. You guys know this about me at this point. I love fantasy literature, right? So I love Lord of the Rings. I love Harry Potter. If there's a dragon involved, I'm probably all on board, right? And a very big theme in the fantasy genre is this idea of prophecy. This idea that there is something wrong in the world and that one day a prophecy happens that promising there will be a hero. There will be something that will fix this problem. And really, the fantasy genre is just borrowing from Old Testament prophecy because that's the historical idea of it. The story of the Bible goes that God created a people all to his own. He created a people that he would be able to shepherd. Scripture says, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. That's not how we would normally describe land nowadays. So I typically tell people, well, think low property taxes, Good schools, low unemployment. That's what God promises his people, right? And he gives it to them. And he says, and we're going to make a covenant, a contract, where you're going to be my people, and I'm going to protect for you. I'm going to provide for you. And in turn, you're going to be faithful to me as my people, God says. You're going to honor me. You're going to worship me. And he sets up the system. And for a while, things go well. In fact, they go really well. Israel, the nation that God creates, ends up becoming the gem of the world. Kings and queens from all of the world would travel to Israel to vacation, right? So you would have the queen of Egypt, the kings of Persia, showing up in Israel saying, wow, this place is so awesome. This is where I want to spend my free time. But what ended up happening in that was they started to take pride in what God had given them they would replace the blessings with their God. And we all do that today, right? We all can say, well, yeah, I believe in God, but I also really believe in my bank account, and I believe in my job, and I believe in my house, or I believe in, and we put our faith in these things. We think, well, as long as my bank account is X amount, I am safe, I am secure. That's believing in a God that's trusting in a God other than the one true God. And that's what the Israelites had started to do. And so really, the prophets tell two stories. One, the painful consequences of trusting in other gods. Because there is a consequence when I say, you know what, how much money I have is going to be where I find my security. Well, when my bank account drops and I start freaking out, that is a consequence of me trusting in something other than God. When I put my faith in my job and job gets rocky, that's a consequence of trusting in something other than God. So part of the prophets tell that painful story, that it's going to hurt, that there will be pain. But the other part of the story the prophets promise is that one day God's going to send a Messiah, a hero, who's going to start to repair a broken world. 
And we still need a God who repairs a broken world. That's really evident when you turn on the news and you see people fighting over politics or fighting over religion or fighting over land or fighting over jobs or a thousand other things that we can divide ourselves into, right? So when you look through the prophets, what you see are some key themes. Idolatry, the consequences of not protecting the downtrodden, not protecting those who can't protect themselves. We see a promise of a Messiah, and we see a promise of a new way of living, a new way of connecting to God, and a new way of connecting to each other. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to dive into Isaiah. Isaiah is the first book of the prophets, and it is a really good example of what this story looks like. And we're going to get to Isaiah 53 as our main section of Scripture, but before we get there, we've got to get to the problem. And so this comes from the very first chapter of Isaiah, and Isaiah writes to the people of God, Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised up and cared for have rebelled against me. The nation of Israel, he says. Why do you continue to invite punishment? Must you rebel forever? What makes you think I want all of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the fatted cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgust me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they're all sinful and false. Then it gets real specific. When you lift up your hands... For prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I won't listen. What God's saying is he's talking to the church, his people, and he's saying, stop gathering for worship on Sundays. Stop collecting offerings. Stop praying, because I'm not listening to you. Do you imagine if I preached that Sunday, sermon, sun, uh, sermon one Sunday? Right? Now, something has gone terribly wrong if God is saying, just stop all of it. And what we find is, yeah, something has gone very wrong. The very next verse says, For your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourself and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. What we find in Scripture is there is a connection between idolatry and injustice. We can't have a distorted relationship with God without having a distorted relationship with his people. There is a direct connection to how we relate to God, to how we relate to his people. And there is a consequence. When we start trusting in other gods, it changes how we think about other people. It changes how we treat other people. And so when God says, your wickedness towards your neighbor, towards the poor, towards the hurting, it's a direct consequence. There's a direct line with how we connect to our God. And the two big words here are going to be righteousness and justice. And we've been using a parallel resource called the Bible Project. And the Bible Project is a group, a nonprofit that's come together where artists and theologians come and create a different way of telling the story of Scripture. So there's about a five-minute video that's going to focus specifically on what righteousness is according to God and what justice is according to God. So I'm going to invite you guys to watch this with me to kind of help frame our discussion going forward. 
If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. 
But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So there's two words we've got to understand here. Righteousness, tzedakah, and mishpat. Right? Typically, when we think of righteousness in the church, we're talking about holy, right? So if you're righteous, you read your Bible a lot, or you go to church, or you're an elder, or you're a pastor. We have this idea of righteousness being a spiritual aspect. And while I'm not saying don't read your Bible, we're literally in a series called How to Read Your Bible, right? The Hebrew righteousness actually just means to be in right relationship, right relationship with God. So in having contact with him, praying with him, talking to him, but having right relationship with each other. Right? That's what righteousness literally means. And so if someone is self-righteous, what they're actually saying is, I, in my own integrity, don't need to be in relationship with you. And so if we see someone who's self-righteous, we normally think they're a jerk right? Because that they're prideful in their own holiness or in their own works or whatever else, and they've separated themselves. They have their righteousness all to themselves, which is what sin is, being separated from God and separated from people. And so what we see in Scripture is, no, God wants us to be connected to him, and he wants us to be connected to each other, right? So that's righteousness. And then that next word is mishpat. That's justice, now, typically, when we think of justice, we think of retributive justice. And so if we say they deserve justice, what we mean is something bad happened to them. Someone stole from them. Someone attacked them. And now we want them to pay the consequences. And for sure, in Scripture, retributive justice is something that God talks about. But what we find is that he actually has a system for taking care of retributive justice. It's called law and order. And so God appoints police officers and law enforcement that serve as the guardrails for society. That makes sure that things like justice happens. 
And so we support our law enforcement, we support our police, because we believe they're actually doing God's work for this side of justice. But there's a second part of justice, restorative justice. And this is something that we don't talk about very often, but it's all over Scripture. And it's this idea that we each have the image of God in us, that we each reflect God differently, and God wants to bring out the best in people. He wants to bring out the best in those who are hurting, those who are suffering, those who have different disabilities or different disadvantages. And all throughout Scripture, God talks about justice being to raise up those who might not be able to get up by themselves. And when we get to the New Testament, God completely says, guess what? There is still retributive justice. It's called law and order, but that is not the role of the church. He says, no, This restorative justice, that's what you're going to be about because that's going to bring about righteousness, right relationship with God, and right relationship with people. Which then actually gives us the definition of injustice, which is redefining good and evil based on our own advantages at the expense of someone else. And that's what sin does, right? Sin makes it okay. Well, I can cut this person off because I'm really in a rush. I can say this about this person because you know what? They're just bad. Sin always pushes people down. It always disconnects us from other people. I love that video when they're reaching up for the tree and every time they reach up, the system shakes and people drop further and further apart from one another. Because that's what sin does. It rips us apart from God and it rips us apart from each other. And the reality is, All of us participate in this type of injustice. Pushing other people down at our own expense. This is the story of the world. This is the story of the scripture, but it's a story that all of us are intimately familiar with. And retributive justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, well, guess what? We all screwed up. We all mucked it up. So we all end up blind, deaf, and mute because you poke me in the eye and I poke you back. Now we're both blind. I say this about you, you say this back. Now we're both mute. It just goes on and on and on. And so God found a way, a new plan, to fix the system. He said, I'm going to promise a Messiah who's going to do things differently. And this comes from Isaiah 53. He says this, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. We missed the Messiah. We weren't looking for him. We didn't think that was how God was going to solve the world's brokenness. Yet scripture says, yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God. A punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so we might be healed. All of us, like sheep, had gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, as a sheep, as a silent before the shears. He did not open his mouth by oppression and justice. 
mishpat. He was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life would be cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. That's the story of Jesus told 700 years before Jesus shows up. That's prophecy. That's the power of prophecy. 700 years before our Messiah would come and die for us, God was saying, this is going to be the plan. This is what this is going to look like. This is what, by oppression and justice, how can that be justice? The good man dies for the bad. What we find is that God decided he was going to change the plan. Uh, that he would take all the uh, retributive justice upon himself. All the brokenness, all the wickedness, all the times that we pushed other people down, he says, I'm putting it all on me. I'll carry all of it. Justice type A, I'm going to wipe clean. But he doesn't just leave us at zero. What we find in Scripture is this. Ah. <laughs> but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when he made his life an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life. The Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. And then listen to this. When he sees all that he's accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant, my servant who is in right relationship with God, will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, to be in right relationship with God. For he will bear all of their sins, I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. Guys, you and I are the rebels. You and I are the ones who have pushed people down and he says, I'm going to wipe it all clean and I'm going to make you righteous. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to put you back in right relationship with God so you can be in right relationship with each other. And Jesus' entire ministry was full of this restorative justice. Everywhere Jesus goes, he goes among those who are downtrodden. He goes to those who have been pushed down. He goes to the people who are pushing other people down. And he says, I have a new way, a new life for you. He says this in, uh, in Luke. He said, Jesus said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Right? Justice. Don't invite people who are just going to be able to give back to you. No, he says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the what? Of the just. Of the just. Of those who bring out the best in people. Of those who lift people up. Because our God lifts us up. You see, this isn't about you being a good person. This isn't about your own strength. This isn't about you being strong enough or smart enough. No, this is about a God who came down and lived among the rebels. You and I, who took care of all the retributive justice, all the times that we've pushed people down, all the times when we want to just fend for ourselves, all the times sin gets in and starts ripping things apart. He goes, I'll take care of all of that. I'm going to make you righteous. 
I'm going to make you in right relationship with God. And then I'm going to send you out. We started off by reading Isaiah 1. Stop coming to church. Why? Because there's brokenness. And what does it end with? Well, these words. Isaiah 1.17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. We have a God who desperately wants to restore this world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He pours that righteousness on top of us. He clothes us in that white cloth. And then he sends us out and he says, and I want you to pass that along. And that's why we do things like sending Sundays. And we go out and we serve and we love because we want to raise people up. That's why we support things like acts of love and the moms and the dads and the babies because we want to raise people up. That's the heart of Jesus. It's what he poured out for us. And so now we take that white cloth, that righteousness, that right relationship, and we extend it to others. We turn the other cheek. We love compassionate, we're moved, we're connected. We do justice. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you humbled by a God who loved us when we were in full rebellion. Lord, who loves us even though we're still in rebellion. Lord, when we're driving, when we're at work, when we see something on social media, when we trust in our job or money or whatever else that the world has got us wrapped up in, Lord. We rebel in different ways every day, and yet you are a God who shows up, who takes all that rebellion onto himself. Lord, who invites us to receive forgiveness. Lord, who invites us to take your righteousness, your right standing in relationship and clothes us in it. And then connects us to a community that we get to do your restorative, beautiful, good, and justice in this community. And Lord, so we come before you asking for forgiveness, but Lord, we are bold also asking you for opportunity. Lord, to love as we have so graciously been loved. Father, Lord, we pray for the boldness as we go forward. We say that's all in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.